youth are dismissed. And then let's go ahead and say a quick prayer. Dear God, thank you so much um, for this place. Thank you for, for just bringing us all here, for providing a safe place where we can come um, and just worship you, sing songs to you, hear what you have to tell us, what you want to show us. And I just pray that you would um, just fill this place, Lord. I pray that you would bless those who are giving. Thank you for their generosity and help us to be good stewards to use these resources and, and what we learn and hear to just further your kingdom, to tell other people about you, to just show love in our community. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Debron. Give her a big hand. She's our family pastor, and we love having her on staff. She's such a, she has such a good heart, and she loves our family so much. So. Uh, my name is John Maurer. Thanks for coming and worshiping, celebrating with us today. Uh, we are in the middle of a series. Actually, we started it last week, but we've been talking about vision and values and where are we going and what is God doing with us. And last week I shared, um, I shared a little story because I, about a month ago I was at a conference and it was on church health. And it was a small group. We sat around a table and discussed what does it mean to be a healthy church for two days straight, and um, they started off the session, the first session, and they asked this question. They said, "What do you really, really, really want in life? What do you really, really want this next year? What do you real? What's like in the core of who you are? What is that thing that you desire to see in your life?" and um, I thought it was a great question. It's based off a question that Jesus asked somebody that was sick 2,000 years ago. And it's a question that you and I ought to answer going into this, this next, this year, 2020. What do you really want? Like, what is of ultimate importance in your life? What is that thing? And when they, they gave us about five minutes to dialogue and kind of think and process that question, here's what I wrote down. What do I really, really, really want? A healthy, irresistible, center-set church that partners with the Holy Spirit, reaching the unchurched and dechurched. It, like, kind of shot out of me, and I'm like, I looked at it, and I'm like, that's pretty good. Actually, that's really good. It's, and really, that statement is all about community transformation, and when God's kingdom invades, it changes our reality. It's changing our communities. It's uh, because heaven invades earth, we get to partner with God's spirit in seeing our cities transformed. And I love that. I love that we so desire to be healthy. And you know what? When you are in a healthy church, you know what happens? Guaranteed conflict happens wherever people are. Wherever I am, conflict happens, right? Wherever broken people are, conflict happens. But guess what happens in a healthy church? We work to bring resolution. We work for reconciliation. We work towards like having a conversation and working it through. That's what happens in a healthy church versus an unhealthy church. What if, guys, we were irresistible to our community? What if, and sometimes I read reports and stories about people so desiring to go to church that they're, they can't help it. So this is true. This morning, my, I was in the shower my son woke up at about 7.15. His name's Shepard. He's three years old. He's this big. 
and Shepard's pounding in the door. And I'm like, come in. And Shepard keeps pounding, Dad! He keeps yelling, Dad! I'm like, what? And he, I'm like, come in! And he, he doesn't, for some reason, he won't come in, but he keeps yelling, Dad! And finally gets to this moment, and he says, Church! <laughs> now that's a, not a statement, it's a question. And he was asking, is today church? And I said, yes, it's church. we're going to church in a little bit. And he goes, yes! <laughs> now, that's a three-year-old that has found an irresistible place of community and friendship. And there's something that even you adults, like, you see him and you pat him on the back, say, good job. And you, you kind of look past. You don't judge him. You don't look at him as a PK kid. You just look at him as a kid in the kingdom, like wanting to follow Jesus and teach him and grow learning with him. So... I, the, the staff got together and we said, okay, taking consideration, all this stuff, what do we really, really want? Um, we came up with this statement, life together, love outward. And this is going to be where we're going to go over the next year. Um, we're going to say, what does it look like as we do life together and we love outward? And so last week I talked about life together. Today I want to talk about love outward as we continue on this series called Vision 2020. So we're looking ahead to see clearly our mission our vision, and our values as we're moving forward. So today I want to talk about this idea of loving outward and going and telling our own story, what God's done in us. And so um, Henry and Charlotte, they had been married for 60 years. They loved each other deeply, um, but there was one secret that Charlotte was keeping, and she had a shoebox, and she told her husband, Henry, I never want you to ask about the shoebox. I never want you to look at the shoebox. The shoebox is staying on the top shelf in our bedroom, but I never, ever want you to ask me a question about it. Just leave it alone. And Henry did that. He did that for 60 years. He never asked about it. He never touched it. He never looked at it. He just kept it private. And um, Charlotte got sick, and they were trying to sort out their affairs, and Henry said to his wife, Charlotte, Charlotte, is it time for me to take down the box? And she said, sure, take down the box. And so he went up into the closet, took the box down, it's pretty heavy at this point, and, um, you know, we got to sort out our affairs, and Henry took down the shoe box, and he opened it up. Inside were two crocheted dolls and $25,000. And so... He's, he's looking at these two dolls, and he had seen her um, crochet dolls before, but um, he's like, wow, what, what is this? What does this mean? Why have you kept this hidden for 60 years? And um, here's what Charlotte said. She said, my aunt told me before we got married, she said, I said, aunt, what's the secret of a healthy, vibrant marriage? And her aunt said this, um, it's the goal is to never argue and she said if you ever get angry keep quiet and just crochet a doll okay so whether good or bad right I don't I would say that that's not very good advice but Charlotte said okay and she took it to heart and she started doing it now Henry's moved with tears he's looking down at two dolls lying in the box and he's thinking only twice in 60 years has his darling wife been angry with him? And so then 
he, Henry's staring at the money and the two dolls, and he has tears coming down his eyes, and he says, sweetie, what about, I get the two dolls, but what about all this money? Where did it come from? And Charlotte said, oh, that's the money I made from selling the dolls. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> that was a lot of dolls, I'll just say it. Well, Charlotte had a secret, right? She kept a secret for quite a while. Uh, did you know that in the Gospels, Jesus has a secret that he tries to keep? Um, and this is actually a major theme in the book of Mark. Not so much in the other Gospels, but especially in Mark, we see it all over the place. Um, Jesus has this, we call it the messianic secret. And we see this in quite a few different texts. We see it uh, in Mark 1. We see it in Mark 3. We see it in Mark 7. We see it in Mark 8. We see it in Mark 9. So let me give you a little example of one of these texts. So here's Mark. The first time it shows up in the book of Mark. Don't tell anybody about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine. No, this is Jesus. Don't tell anybody. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along an offering required by the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you've been cleansed. Uh, Oscar Wilde said that he could resist everything except temptation. That's, that's funny. Um, in the same way, in the same way, you can... Keep everything except a secret, can't you? Like, as soon as somebody says, I've got a secret, as soon as those words come out, it's almost like we can't help but go tell somebody. In church life, I always tell our staff, if three people know, the whole church knows. It just, it's just, people can't help. They just want to share. They want to share life and what's going on. But Jesus constantly did stuff like this. Don't, shh, don't tell anybody. Verse 45, but the man went away and spread the word. Jesus, the son of God, don't tell anybody. And then the next verse, the guy went and told everyone everywhere. That's, so this is called the messianic secret. We see this all the way through Mark. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what happened. Uh, in the next one you see in Mark 3, 12, Jesus uh, gives them strict orders not to tell anybody. Mark 7, Jesus heals somebody's ears, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Mark 8, 30, Peter proclaims, you're the Christ, and Jesus says, shh, don't tell. So we see this concept over and over again in Mark. Now, I want to go to the end of the book of Mark, so if you have your Bibles, turn to the end of the book of Mark. And I want to read the very ending of the book of Mark, Okay. So this is Mark, and just so you know, I'm going somewhere, so you just have to hold on, okay? I'm trying to help you guys get somewhere. So here is Mark 6, we'll start in verse 1. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, mother, the, Mary, the mother of James, and Shalom went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they asked each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Verse 4. But as they arrived, they looked up and saw, the, saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away, rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in, 
in a white robe sitting on the right side. The woman were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, past tense, was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Verse 7. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him here just as he told you before he died. The woman fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End of the book of Mark. Now, in everybody's Bibles, there's a line right there, okay? Everything else that comes after is most of the most time it's italicized, and there's a line, and it says everything after this point here is what we call an early scribal edition. And so, um, and most of the time underneath that line, it'll say something like this, the most reliable early manuscripts conclude at verse 8. Okay? So everybody look in your Bibles, you see that line. Um, and so then the question is, John, what do we do with everything that comes after verse 8? Real quick, I want to touch base on there, and that's not my main point at all, but I need to fill you in a little bit. So what do you do with the longer ending after this point? Um, I believe it's still authoritative, it's still inspired, it's still in our canon, but it's just not Mark's original ending, okay? So if, let's just sit with that tension for just a moment. Now, if you understand the end of this book called Mark, and what Mark was trying to do, it's unsettling, isn't it? If this is the end of the book, it's like, What? What are you talking about? I don't get it. It's not satisfying. It's satisfying. It's actually a cliffhanger. But if you understand what Mark was trying to do, it's a brilliant ending. Okay? So, go back to the Messianic secret. Throughout the book of Mark, people are told, don't share with anyone. Don't go tell anybody about that. And finally, at the end of the book of Mark, when, when these women are told, guess what? Go and tell the story. Go and tell the disciples. Guess what happens to these women? They're seized up. And the Bible says that they're afraid, and they do nothing. They don't tell anyone. And so, if you understand what Mark's doing here, it's brilliant, because the final note of Mark is irony. Throughout Mark, people are told that they're supposed to keep quiet. And then finally, when they're commanded to go spread the word, they do the opposite. And guess what? Mark is trying to get us, his hearers and readers of this text to do. <gasps> these women are silent. They were told to go and tell. And we understand that all, there's all these other stories of Jesus healing, setting people free. And they are told, don't share with anybody. And you get to the end, and they're seized by fear. And they're, they're told to go share. Guess what it does for us, the reader? Our response should be, oh, we've got to go and tell. It's our responsibility to go and share what's going on. And that's what Mark is, is trying to get us to see. It's, he's a literary artist here to knit this together for us to go see. It's our mission 
The very message that must go forth must be proclaimed. It's our responsibility now. They were quiet. They said nothing. What a brilliant ending. We are called. You and I, the weight of this whole text points to you and I going and telling, loving outward. That's the point. Now, the historical context of the book of Mark, I'm going to give you a real big, big picture here. Uh, Mark wrote his gospel to Roman Christians who were undergoing massive uh, persecution around 64 AD. Massive persecution. And so, imagine the pressure that's on the early church, and they read this text, and they say, they were silent. What's our response? We must go and tell. That's up to you and I. That's our response, the early church's response. We have to go and tell. And so the question is, what do we tell? You know what? It's real simple, the good news. The good news. Uh, here is Mark 1.1. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Do you guys know that we forget how good good news is? I don't know about you, but I crave good news. Sometimes I cannot, well, I think I've told you this. I don't watch the 6 o'clock news anymore or whatever time it's on. I can't hack it anymore. I just can't do it. And so every once in a while, I'll go on my computer and try to figure out what's going on in the world, and I'll pull up happy news. You know there's happy news? Their tagline is, real news, compelling stories, always positive. Uh, that's what I need. That's what the world needs. The world needs some good news. Uh, I was reading some of their, their articles. This is some of the more recent, um, their stories. Here's top international stories. How crime rates have fallen by up to 70% in parts of the Western world. That's good news. Um, there's a section called Hero, Hero Stories. Um, there's a Florida teenager that saves a drowning newlywed. That's good news, right? That's stuff we don't hear on the 6 o'clock news. We hear all the negative stuff. Uh, here's one. Real-life MacGyver saves choking victim with knife and pen. It's amazing. That's good news, right? Uh, here's one. Dog saves baby from crawling into the sea. That's good news. Don't we crave good news? Do you guys understand what good news is? Uh, let me read one more. Uh, generous high schooler. These are true stories. Generous high schooler sells her new Jeep to buy teammate car to get to practice. That's a high schooler practicing radical generosity, sacrificial generosity. Wow. So you, this is good news. And guess what? We all get it. Guess what, guys? Jesus had good news. Good news. We forget how good good news is, don't we? Um, good news is reconciliation. We are reconciled with God, but guess what? God gives us because of we are reconciled with him. He gives us the ability to reconcile with each other, to work through our human issues and problems. He gives us freedom. Freedom's a really, really good news, isn't it? Grace, and we are loved, and the list goes on and on. Um, think about things that the church has done that are just good news. Um, 
one of my friends, Alan Scratch, he's the Pomona Vineyard senior pastor. Uh, his church, quite a few years ago, he called me up and said, John, we just, uh, we just gave away $5,000 in free gas. And all I could think of is, that's good news. That's good news. Um, one time, I did, we did a car wash at our church in Baton Rouge, and it was really fun. We, it was, we held up signs saying, $1 car wash. And um, so people would pull in, and they would ask the question, is it really a dollar, or do you really want 20 And you're just trying to, you know, and no, we're like, honestly, it's a dollar car wash. And they're like, sweet. They'd get their dollar ready. We'd wash their car. We would dry it, make it all perfect. And then at the end, one of the team members would grab a dollar from their pocket and give it to them. And they were like, um, they were like, no, it's a dollar car wash. We're going to give you a dollar. Thank you for letting us wash your car. And they were like, what? And I remember... Here's what they did, though. When they started getting, when the church starts doing that type of stuff, guess what happens? People started, like, sending it on Facebook. They're like, can you believe what the Vineyard Church has done? They did a ca- dollar car wash. You need to show up at this dollar car wash. And they wouldn't tell what it was. But, and then their friends would come, and we'd wash their car and give them a dollar, and they couldn't believe it. But that's good news. Guess what? If there was no taxes for a year, You'd be like, yay, that's good news, right? If I had the cure for every disease in a little test tube, guess what you do with that news? You share it with the world. You don't hide it, right? You share it. And so Jesus was good news, period. Good news. From the synagogue, Jesus hits the streets. He meets a leper going down the street road. And he does what no first century Jew would ever consider doing. He reaches out and puts his hand on this leper. Now, nobody else would do it because they're afraid they're going to get unclean. And Jesus heals this leper. And they walk away healed, physically healed. And you know what happens? He goes running to tell everybody what happened in his life. You guys, that's called good news. A woman who's a sinner cries all over Jesus' feet, and then she dries his feet with her hair. Now, the religious critique of the situation, those who had power and authority at the temple, it's expressed in thoughts of disdain and pride. And they say, doesn't Jesus know what kind of woman is touching him? And then Jesus defends her, and he says, you're forgiven. And he welcomes her into community. That's good news. A group of children run up to Jesus, and the disciples attempt to push these little kids away. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. You guys, this is so much more of a story than, like, Jesus hanging out with kids. It's it's so much more than that, because guess what? 2,000 years ago, kids had almost no rights at all. They're used to being pushed aside. And Jesus affirms these little kids, and then he says, come into my community experience my life, experience my love. This is good news for kids. Jesus hung out with sinners and sick people and lepers and prostitutes and drunkards. If you felt like a second-class citizen, if you felt like a failure, if you felt like not a religious person, 
if you felt alienated by the establishment, if you, feel, if you felt alienated by spiritual-type people 2,000 years ago, Jesus loved hanging out with you, and that was good news. Jesus embodied this idea of love outward. Love outward. Love going beyond us towards the other. Jesus did that. In contrast, Jesus didn't much like hanging out with the religious leaders and in the institutions of his day. He felt they were more into money and image and status than into compassion and people and God. So, quite a few years ago, there was a Mercedes-Benz TV commercial. And there was a car that was colliding with this brick wall. Um, you guys probably have seen something like that. And um, Mercedes was trying to talk about their new, um, their, their reinforced energy-absorbing car body, okay? So they were talking about this new thing, and they believed that it was going to save a ton of lives. And so the commercial was designed for that. And guess what happened? All these other car manufacturers copied Mercedes-Benz. And they all stole, basically, their, their concept of what they did here. And when Mercedes was asked, why didn't you reinforce your patent here? Why did you let all these other car manufacturers copy your design? Here's what they said. There's a company spokesperson that said, because, and I'm quoting them, because some things in life are too important not to share. Hats off, right? It's amazing. And if I was going to paraphrase him, I would say, he's saying, this good news must be shared. It's too good to not share this. Because we have good news. You and I have good news. If you've given your life to Jesus, you have good news. You're empowered by the Spirit. We're sent out to announce the coming of God's kingdom, which is restoration and healing, reconciliation, freedom, life. To share good news. So the question is, how do we communicate good news, John? What does that look like? And is this where you make me feel like a really bad Christian for not sharing with everybody? And my answer is no. Okay? Um, so how do we share this good news? One, through your actions. And sometimes words when necessary. Francis of Assisi is quoted as saying, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. I like that a lot. And mostly I would say that that's where larger society's at. They have a, we have a whole bunch of talking heads now, don't we? We have Everybody has an opinion about everything. But we don't show love the way we need to. And I would say if you and I started to live this out, actions and words when necessary, man, it would change our society. Actions speak really loud today. And it's not that we don't use our voice, but let me tell you, a lot of times we say, this is, this is what you need, this is, and we try to shove it down. We try to go the, the apologetic way, like try to convince somebody, and I've never convinced somebody into the kingdom of God. But I've loved people and showed them Christ's love and prayed for them, and guess what's happened in the end? They're like, oh, Tell me about your faith. Like, I've had lots of people say, tell me about your faith. 
you live out your faith very differently than so many people. You guys, the good news is not a hard sell. It's not. It's about actions and sometimes a little invite. Actions and a little invite. You don't have to convince anybody. Um, I often, I think I've said this to you before, but the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, is a lot like a pool. A lot like a pool. Well, John, what do you mean? All, you know, if you have a pool in your backyard, all you need to do is say, hey, Mowers, come on over. And guess what? You don't have to convince me in the middle of the summer how cool the water is going to be and how refreshing it's going to be. All you have to do is throw the invite. And we let the pool speak for itself. God's kingdom is just like that. Let God's kingdom speak for itself. We don't have to convince anybody that they have to jump in the pool. If you said, John, you've got to come to my house. You've got to jump in the pool. It's going to be refreshing. You're going to love it. I'd be like, what's wrong? Like, right? There would be something inherently that says, what are you trying to do? <laughs> like, or I would say God's kingdom's like a feast, like a party. You don't have to convince somebody that they should come and join you for an amazing buffet and a food and a party. You don't have to convince people. It speaks for itself. All they need is a little invite. Just the invite is good news, right? Or it's like a trampoline for kids. The, all these things, they just speak for themselves, right? God's kingdom speaks for itself, and I think God's waiting for a group of people just to say, you know what, let's throw a little invite, let's love people, let's use words when necessary, but a trampoline speaks for itself, doesn't it? You don't need to convince somebody that they can jump six feet high in a trampoline. You don't have to, either you love it or you don't. And so all you need is like an invite. Uh, we live on the corner right next to a high school and kids will stop by and they like stare at our trampoline. And as kids stare, my wife has said, you can jump. And they like go through our gate and they jump at our trampoline for five minutes while they're waiting for their mom. It's really funny, like, all they need is a little invite. That's it. It's literally that simple. Kingdom life's amazingly good. So proclaim in actions and words when necessary this good news that God has given to us. And in order to do that, you've got to get out of yourself. You have to move beyond your needs. And I want you to know the, the goal is a lifestyle, not a program. And that's one of the issues that the church has wrestled with for year after year after year. We turned into a program instead of just like, this is who we are as God's people. We reach and share good news with those around us. Whatever good news God has given you, if you've been forgiven, you share, I've been forgiven. If you've been set free, share, I've been set free. If you've been reconciled with your neighbors and it was the power of God, you share that story. If you've been healed, you share that story. Whatever God's done in you, that's your story. And you start to share it, and it changes the world. So the goal is not, the goal is not a program. It's, it's a lifestyle for us. And lifestyle is about relationship. And it starts with the person next door to us. It starts with, your very own neighbors. It's about relationship. Your coworkers, friends, neighbors, family. What if we just start there? Um, so one time I was 
I was living in Atlanta for two years, and uh, this is right after college, and so I was on staff at the Atlanta Vineyard Church, and I lived in this town, and we bought a little house, and uh, so one day I was at Kroger, which is like a grocery store, and the person in front of me was talking about this na- lady named Sandy, and so s- they were talking about Sandy and how Sandy lost her job, and I was just there, you know, putting my stuff on the conveyor belt, and then fu- they said Sandy's last name, and I realized Sandy that they were talking about that lost her job the day before was my very own next-door neighbor. My very own neighbor. And so I was thinking, huh, shoot, that's a, that's a terrible story. And so I left, groceries in hand, went to the house, I put the groceries into the refrigerator, and we had this small little house, it was like 900 square feet or something. And the neighbor's house is like, like 10 feet away. And I was thinking, I kept thinking, I should do something. I should be good news for her. And so then I, but I didn't want to. I'm, I'm, let's say, me being honest, like I, I mean, I didn't really know her that well. We talked about the weather before. But then I kept sensing I should just say hi and say, sorry, you lost your job, and, well, I'm a pastor, so maybe I should pray for her or something like that. I don't know. And so there I was. I, I found myself, like, walking to her door, <laughs> and I knocked, and I said, hi, Sandy. I'm John. I'm your neighbor. We, you know, and she's like, hi, John. And I said this. I was, I just said, hey, I heard that you lost your job yesterday. Is there any way for me or my wife to help? She burst into tears and fell into my arms, and I'm like, oh, what do I do? <laughs> like, tears, like, leaking everywhere, and I, all I did, I, I was just trying to, like, follow God's spirit and be kind and maybe offer up a prayer, and so we literally spent the next 45 minutes, an hour, I listened to her old story, I cared a little bit, she cried, and then I prayed for her. And she walked away feeling like a million bucks. She walked away saying, God's doing something in my life. God's not done with me. The way she felt in that moment. Like, God used me a little bit to bring her some good news. Sometimes we think of this needy world and we think of this big mission super far away. In reality, our needy world a lot of times is right next door to us. Right next door. And the question is, do we hear the cries of our very own neighbors? Do we hear the people? Do we hear not only the cries, do we see their tears? And are we a people that are willing to respond and stand up and be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world? Are we willing to be good news? So I want to show you one video clip from a movie, um, but I want to set it up for you guys. It's a little movie. You probably didn't hear of it. It's called Titanic. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bad joke. Uh, but April 15th, 1912, the Titanic plunged 12,000 feet to the Atlantic floor. It was two hours, 40 minutes after a 300-foot gash was ripped in its starboard side. Eva Hart said this, I saw the horror of it sinking. I heard even more dreadfully the cries of drowning people. 20 lifeboats were launched, um, too few and only partially filled with passengers. 
most of the people struggled in the ICC, uh, ICCs, while those in lifeboats stayed at a safe distance away. So let's play this video. It's about, it's, I think it's four minutes long, but let's just watch a scene, and I want to talk about this and our response as a church. Go ahead. <laughs> 